This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our mystery in a moment. I want to thank all of our supporters. If you would like to continue to see us grow, please make sure you hit the subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and more. The best way to support us is to share our podcast with friends and family. Thank you for all of our supporters. And now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. It's time for a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller and journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Acker Beaker Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. For the second time this Halloween season, we're sharing with you real history that is part of a ghost tour that you can participate in. As before, this is not a sponsored episode. We don't have anything to do with these tours. We just thought it would be fun to highlight some stories that give you the option of following up with an in-person visit. After all, October is our favorite month of the year for these kinds of activities. Tonight's story is one of the stops on Black Cat Tales and Tours, a ghost walk in Canton, Ohio. More about that tour at the end of the podcast. First, let's get to this story and what a unique tale it is. It's about the execution of Christian Bachtel in 1833, the first murder in Canton and the first hanging in Stark County. What makes this one so unique is we don't have to guess what happened in the hours leading up to Bachtel killing his wife or use forensics to determine how he carried it out, or even guess about what was in his mind as he left his children behind at the bloody murder scene. That's because he wrote it all down before he died, and the story of his life and confession was printed for all to read in the Ohio Repository on November the 29th, 1833. That was about a week after he was executed. And let me tell you, it's a chilling, detailed narrative, even by 21st century standards. And it's heartbreaking on so many levels for the murder victim, a woman who apparently had never been anything but kind and supportive of her husband. 
for the three children that were made orphans by this act, including the baby who was nursing at the moment her father ended her mom's life. Even for Bactel himself, an alcoholic who seemed keenly aware of his descent into darkness. Christian Bactel was born in Maryland in March of 1803. He didn't talk about what had happened to his mom, but mentioned he had lived with his dad till he was seven, then his grandpa till he was 14, then back with his father till he was 18. He admitted he was a rebellious teen who developed an early fondness for whiskey. In his confession, Bactel wrote, Whenever liquor was to be obtained, I was sure to get intoxicated. Thus commenced a course of moral depravity, which has followed me up to this time. At 18, Bactel met a woman named Betsy Morrison. She was married, but her husband had left her, and the two of them, in Bactel's words, contracted habits of intimacy. They lived together for two years, unhappy, both of them routinely drunk, and had a child that died the day it was born. Bactel left Betsy. He blamed her for seducing him. Bactel moved to Ohio and in 1826 settled at Congress Furnace, that's a crossroads in present-day Canton Township, and there he met Mary Henry. The couple married soon after his arrival, on April the 13th, 1826. Now, where Bactel thought Betsy had been bad for him, Mary was everything he could have hoped for. He wrote, From the time of my marriage till last winter, we lived happily together. My wife was as kind and affectionate as I could wish. Had I done as well as she did, we might still have lived happily together. All might still have been well. Bactel worked as a farmhand as he and Mary added three children to their family. By 1833, that had seven-year-old Wilhelm, six-year-old Mary Ann, and two-year-old Caroline. Mary worked, too, sewing and washing for neighbors to help ends meet. Bactel wrote, She did all that could be expected of a wife in assisting to provide for and support our growing family. But Bactel had never surrendered the whiskey habit he'd picked up in his youth. And after several years of marriage, he stopped trying altogether. He was frequently drunk, though he said he never abused Mary in any state. He wrote, I loved her, ardently and devotedly loved her, at least so far as one in my situation was capable of loving. And my affection for her was the only reason why I was not sooner completely abandoned to gross intoxication. By the winter of 1832, however, Bactel had hit rock bottom. He was having trouble holding a job. He was deeply in debt. Creditors were pressing him for payment. He wrote, My time was passed wretchedly. I frequently thought I would destroy myself. One day, about four weeks before the murder, I went into the fields for the purpose of hanging myself. I had gone some distance when the thought suddenly suggested itself, unbidden, that my wife was the cause of my misery and that she, not I, ought to die. 
The suggestion came with such force that I immediately turned as if with a mechanical impulse for the purpose of returning home and at once ridding me of her as the cause of all my sufferings. But before I reached home, I became more tranquil and took no steps toward carrying my design into execution. But from this time, the demon which had taken possession of my breast was suffered to remain there without my making any effort to expel it. In other words, I frequently contemplated the taking of her life. Bactel said he never truly suspected Mary had taken another lover, but he did often accuse her of sleeping with a man named Ezra Jones. In his written confession, he apologized to Jones and exonerated him. He said he was jealous, all right, but it was of Mary that she could go about her day and duties without the kind of burden he felt. He was sure she had fallen out of love with him. On April the 1st, 1833, Bactel took his wife and children with him to his mother-in-law's home, where he spent the afternoon working. He was drinking on the job as well. It was then that Bactel decided when they returned home, he would ask his wife about how she felt about him. And if he didn't like the answer, he would kill her. That afternoon, the Bactels argued on the ride home and it continued into the evening. Bactil asked Mary why she hadn't made him a pair of pantaloons from the cloth he'd brought home for the purpose. After all, she sewed and washed for others, he said. Mary responded she would not make them, that others paid for her labor, and that she got no reward for anything she did for her husband. Bactil wrote, This, although it was true, although it was most true that she was not rewarded for all the kindness she had bestowed on me, and although I felt the full force of its truth, it made me angry. Bactel said he grabbed an axe handle he had made and laid it on the chimney right where she was sitting. He wanted her to see it, and at that moment he was already making plans to kill her with it. She saw it all right but she made no reaction. As 8 p.m. approached, Mary went to bed. Bactel followed her, their fight still going on, and Mary declared she would never have intercourse with him again. Bactel was enraged. He walked to the fireplace, eyed the axe handle, then walked back to bed without it. He told Mary maybe he should leave and go stay with a friend. By now, Mary was nursing their youngest child, Caroline. Mary was lying in bed, facing away from him. She refused to speak. So Bactel dressed out of his night clothes, walked to the fireplace, and lifted the axe handle. He walked back and forth at least three times between the fireplace and the bed, looking at Mary as she nursed Caroline, ignoring him. He wrote, The last time I approached her bed cautiously, probably without her being aware of it, I struck her with the flat side of the axe handle, a heavy blow on the side of the head and ear. I then took the infant from her breast and laid it in the bed with the other children. As I took the babe from her, 
I heard her give a low moan or sigh as though she were expiring, and I presume she was senseless. But thinking it possible she was still sensible to suffering, I thought it would be an act of mercy to dispatch her at once. Accordingly, I struck her again with the sharp corner of the axe handle. While the weapon was an axe handle and not an axe, the sharp corner penetrated her skull and exposed her brain. Bactel did not see that, however. He said he refused to look at what he'd done. He wrote, It was not till after I had struck the last blow that I reflected on what I was doing or had done. In a moment, however, after the fatal deed was done, remorse was let loose upon me. In the anguish of my heart, I cried out, Good God, what have I done? And from the depth of my soul, I exclaimed, God have mercy on you. Worlds of wealth, had they been at my command at that moment, would freely have been sacrificed could they have restored her to life and me to innocence. But, as often happens in these cases, self-preservation quickly kicked in, and Bactel made up his mind to go on the run. He rifled through his wife's pockets and found four dollars. He wrapped a few clothes into a bundle, took a loaf of bread and a quart of whiskey, and left the house and his sleeping children behind. He intended to take the road to Maslin and found himself in a field near the home of a Mr. Hull. There he rested on a stone and reflected about what he should do next. He thought about turning himself in, but a drink from the whiskey he had brought with him renewed his confidence that he had done the right thing. He left Mr. Hull's and started across the woods. Next, he came across James Lee, who was out and about at that late hour. Lee spoke to Bactel, but Bactel said he pretended to be too drunk to comprehend him and just kept going. He wandered on, lost for a time till he recognized he was on the property of John Neese. As he walked past the home in the darkness, he heard a lamb bleeding. The young lamb made him think of his children, and he wondered if it was a sign that he should go back. But once again he talked himself out of it and continued to walk till about two in the morning when he lay down in a field and fell asleep. He woke an hour later, drank some more, and began walking again in no particular direction. As luck would have it, his random path took him right past the home of his brother-in-law, John Moore. It was now after sunrise, and Moore was out. He saw Bactel. Bactel said he was obliged to stop and chat with him for a few minutes, Moore having no idea of what had transpired a few hours earlier. Then Bactel aimed himself toward Worcester in neighboring Wayne County. At some point, he found a field and fell asleep again, this time for several hours, tucked in next to a log. Then the second night came, and he walked a bit more before finding lodging at a private house. There was a thunderstorm that night. Bactel said he dreamed that he was struck with lightning three times. When he woke, he took the dream as an omen that they were going to find him that day. And they did. He almost reached Worcester 
when he was discovered. The search for Mary's killer was already in its second day. A Mr. Richard and a Mr. Nichols took him into custody. He didn't resist. Pato said that during his trial, it bothered him that the prosecutor told the jury he had punched his wife, that Mary then asked him if that was all he intended to give her, and that's when he beat her to death. In his written confession, Bachtel insisted he had never told anyone that, and that it bothered him that Mary's loved ones would think she had died in pain and suffering. He wrote, I can assure them that such is not the case. I am confident she was beyond the sufferings of this world from the moment that I inflicted the first blow. Bachtel said other than that, he considered his trial fair and impartial and thanked his unpaid attorneys. He wrote, The story of my crime and my disgrace is ended. I am a hateful outcast from society, treading on the borders of the grave, and must soon, forever, close my eyes on all earthly scenes. The sun and moon shall continue to rise and set. Winter and summer, seed time and harvest, come and return. All nature shall pursue its usual course, bringing to others life and light and activity, while I shall be sleeping in the grave, my spirit with him who gave it. Bactel closed by warning others to stay away from whiskey, that it was the source of all his misery. He finished with, I ask not of the world its charity. I ask not of its commiseration or its sympathy. I merit its just condemnation, its unmitigated reprobation. I die in peace with all mankind, and if prayer and unfeigned countenance are of avail, I hope to die in peace with my God. Bagdell's trial lasted for two days. The jury took four hours to find him guilty of first-degree murder. His execution was scheduled for Friday, November the 22nd. The gallows was built in the town commons, then at the corner of Market Avenue and Tuscarora Street in Canton. People began arriving for the spectacle the day before, and estimates put the crowd at 25,000 people. According to one witness, Stark County Sheriff George Webb and a mounted troop called the Light Horse appeared with the prisoner shortly before 11 a.m. Bactel ascended the scaffold. His arms and legs were bound, the noose placed around his neck, and for his last words, he repeated his warning about the danger of alcohol. What came next, I can only assume was either a way to draw out the drama for the gathering or to promote Bactel's misery, or both, because I have never heard of this procedure before. At 11 a.m., with Bactel standing bound and blind on the gallows, his head in the rope, the sheriff announced, Christian Bactel has one hour to live. Over the next 60 minutes, he repeated, Christian Bactel has 45 minutes to live. Christian Bactel has 30 minutes to live. Christian Bactel has 20 minutes to live. Christian Bactel has 10 minutes to live. 
Christian Bactyl has five minutes to live. Christian Bactyl has one minute to live. And finally, Christian Bactyl, your time has come. And then the trap was sprung. The spot where Bactyl was killed is on Black Cat Tales and Tours. That's an outdoor walking tour that covers about a mile and a half of downtown Canton. The group I see has several walks planned for Fridays and Saturdays in the month of October. You can find Black Cat Tales and Tours on Facebook, but I'll also put a link to their $16 tickets in the episode notes. And if you're operating a ghost tour or Halloween event this year, write us at feedback at ohiomysteries.com. If we can find a great piece of history on one of your stops, we'll share it with our listeners as well. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.